0: HVAC 360, episode number 37, Net Zero Energy Buildings. Welcome back everybody to another episode of HVAC 360. I am your host and guide on this crazy journey, Matt Nelson. This week we got a very special episode for everybody. Uh, Net zero energy buildings, obviously, it's a it's a a great topic of mine, but it is a special listener request coming all the way over from Poland. Yes, uh, realize that when I when I say give me any suggestions, I mean give me any suggestions. So this is just proof that uh, you are very connected to your host here. And if you do have a suggestion, just drop me a line, Matt at BuildingX.co. And this one comes, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. If I was to say his first name in English, I'd say it's Michael. But if you're from Poland and your name starts with Michael um, or Mikal or however yeah, I would say it with a Polish accent, which I don't have, so I'm going to stop there. Anyway, I uh, I dug, dug around and I came across an expert in the field of net zero energy buildings. He comes to us by the way of the... Uh, national renewable energy labs that 's one of the eight uh, laboratories that's associated around the u s uh doing some uh some good research work but uh also kind of known in the circles as nrel uh, he is paul Torsellini. and he is a principal engineer there and he's authored a number of papers um that uh, that go into net zero energy buildings and the like. So, I, you know, I appreciate uh, uh, Paul spending some time with us. And uh, I know I'm going to thank him on the back end, so let's just cut to the interview. Here's Paul Torsolini with the National Renewable Energy Labs. Let's cut to the tape. All right, today we're talking with uh, Paul Torsellini of the National Renewable Energy Laboratories or nrel nrel um, he 's a principal engineer there how are you doing today Paul good and yourself i am uh, i am i' i'm managing got a little bit of head cold but uh we'll get we 'll get through that today so tell me a little bit about your your background
1: okay so i 'm a mechanical engineer um, and have focused primarily in energy efficiency for buildings, and uh, my thesis topics re- were related to that. I have almost 20 years of experience at NREL uh, managing a, a group of research engineers looking specifically at what it takes to create uh, very low-energy
0: buildings. Now, uh, I, you know, I, I guess you you Google your name, and there's like, you know, a whole bunch of papers that just pop up. You know, how, how many papers have you contributed to over the your career?
1: Oh, it's certainly in the order of several dozen uh, papers, you know, primarily related to case studies of low-energy buildings, measuring actual performance of low-energy buildings, and more recently, uh, the concept of zero-energy buildings and how to actually accomplish that in today's world.
0: Now, uh, tell me a little bit about what NREL is. I mean, it's obviously it's the national, uh, national Energy, National, you, you explain it. <laughs> okay. So the National
1: Renewable Energy Lab is one of several national labs that is owned by the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, predominantly funded uh, by them uh, through the U.S. Congress. Um, NREL has a very specific mission uh, to look at energy efficiency and renewable energy. Uh, not only do we do work in the buildings area, but transportation, biofuels, wind, uh, photovoltaics, uh, solar thermal, um, so there's quite a broad range of um, trying to address critical research issues uh, to reduce energy impact.
0: Now you talked about low energy buildings. Um, I guess what is you know is was there a a large difference? I mean, was was there a shift in focus from going from low energy to zero energy, or what? What you know, what made that shift?
1: Uh, Not really. I think there's a lot of words that have been used to describe um, buildings that have less environmental and energy impact. You know, people talk about high-performance buildings and green buildings, uh, low energy. I think many years ago, the term was more passive solar buildings. Um, Whatever it is, they're really buildings that minimize their energy consumption, impact on the grid through better design, through better operations. Ultimately, the objective is not so much the name, but how do we really reduce uh, the energy that goes through that meter? Um, the zero energy term uh, came about as well, probably a couple different pieces there. One is that it's, it's a nice benchmark that people kind of gravitate to it um, because the implication is certainly that there is none or minimal impact on the grid. Um, in reality, when we talk about zero energy buildings, most people use a definition that you're um, exporting, you're you're generating energy on site, using it on your own building, and anything that's extra, you export to the grid. And then if during the year you need some of that energy, you can actually buy it back. And so over the course of the year, the balance is zero across the meter.
0: Now, I guess you've touched on an important point because uh, there's been, you know, some discussion if, you, if you're, if you you know, at all involved in this topic about, you know, a site net zero building or a source net zero building. Can you explain the difference? Sure. Uh, a lot of it has to
1: do with how we define a boundary. Um, and so, you know, backing up one step, one of the things about zero energy buildings is that zero is a real number as opposed to a green building or a low-energy building or high-performance building. You know, we can talk about those terms all day long, but there's no real definition that says it is or isn't. Um, So a zero-energy building creates a definition of zero. Now, the next question is what is zero? How do you define the boundary? Uh, And what metrics do you use? And so when we talk about a site, really we're talking about, the amount of energy that goes um, to and from that site through that meter, and that's where the boundary is. And it could be the building, it could be a campus, it could be you know a subdivision or small community that establishes that boundary to to interact with and do that accounting. When we talk about source, we're really backing up that boundary to include inefficiencies at primarily the power plant and the distribution of that but it also includes things like you know, the amount of energy to move natural gas to your site. Um, we, we've even looked at issues where people have on-site wood chips and they want to look at it from a source point of view, and we include the transportation costs or energy to bring those wood chips to the site. Um, it really is how you define the boundary. Um, now, on the other side of it, when... You know, when, when push comes to shove and you have to actually have to measure something, you're not going to go out to the power plant and measure how much coal went into that power plant. But what you do do is you look at your utility meter, which is site-based, and you use some kind of multiplying factor to try to get at the source impact of that. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about how that multiplier is determined and whether it's valid or not. Ultimately, no matter what definition you use, it ultimately comes back to your building's boundary and trying to minimize your impact on the rest of the grid.
0: So, I mean, is, is one more important than the other? I mean, if you're thinking about building, you know, a net zero building, um, I, you know, does it matter? It, uh, it does to some
1: extent. Um, I can give you, you know, some interesting examples of people trying to reduce their environmental uh, footprint. Uh, one would be something like, I'm going to build my building in Seattle because the site-to-source conversion is better because they have a lot of hydro on that grid. The reality of it, though, is, is that if you build a building in Seattle, that hydro has been fully subscribed many years ago. And so all you're doing by building that building is actually re, you know increasing their footprint, and the chances are that incremental dispatch is coming from something like natural gas. Um, so part of it is, is that sometimes, you know, when, when you set a test and you set the boundaries of the test and people want to pass, sometimes people say, well, what is the most creative way I can use to pass that test and, you know, yeah, check it off that I've met that accomplishment? And that's what we see more in how people choose boundaries, not more that one's better or worse than another. Um, So, you know, in an ideal world, you know, you'd say, well, I'm net-zero site and I'm net-zero source. You know, you could even extend that further and say I'm net-zero emissions, Mm -hmm. uh, which is another um, metric that's used. And, you know, you mentioned looking up some of our papers. We have papers that actually describe uh, kind of the pluses and minuses of the different definitions. And in particular, when you choose one, you know, over another, what games might you be playing uh, with that? Um, I've also seen some very funny ones, like uh, people creating net zero electricity buildings. (laughs) And in reality, what they're doing is they're buying a lot of natural gas, generating their own electricity, and then exporting electricity back to the grid. Um, And they kind of ignore the natural gas piece of it. So people get creative, which is one of the reasons why we actually did some writing on what we consider to be a zero energy building and why?
0: All right. So I mean, when we talk about, at least in the United States, when we talk about, you know, scope of of how many buildings actually, you know, are kind of, you know, have this, um, you know, name net zero building. You know, I guess what what's this kind of the scope? Are we talking about a lot of buildings? Are we talking in the tens? Are we talking in the in the thousands? I mean, what what's the scope of this?
1: Well, we we don't officially track it, um, but my feeling is it's probably kind of in the tens range. You know, tens to towards 100. Um, we do have uh, a list of some of some buildings that we know are out there that are zero energy. Um, and if you you know, are very purist uh, a purist about that definition, you know people talk about having things like off grid houses. Well, those aren't really zero because, according to the definition, quite often they're using propane or something for cooking or for emergency backup generation when they don't have enough foldable So those even don't qualify under a zero definition. Uh, But we do know know, that there are definitely some out there, and uh, we hear more and more every day about people either striving to do that or that they've accomplished that.
0: Now, I mean, do, is there a feeling that, I mean, there's any growth in this area? Is it is it just, is it more interest-based?
1: Uh, well, there's definitely growth. Um, there's a segment of the population that I would call very early adopters um, that are interested in doing this and have made a commitment usually as building owners, owner-occupied buildings, that this is something they want to do. Um, and I would say... You know, 10 years ago, I didn't hear of anybody doing something like this or at least publicizing it. And I'd say today we're we're getting a lot of interest um, in the topic. Uh, a lot of people are realizing that it's not as expensive as they thought it might be. Um, and that there are more and more examples. And the more examples you have out there, the more people that realize, oh, it's something I can have. It's something I can do. It's like any kind of technology adoption. You know, if you said 30 years ago, how many people have cell phones? Well, the technology was out there, but people didn't have them. And then suddenly, almost overnight, you know, in the last decade, suddenly everybody has one. And so, you know, I mean, we are at the very early stages of this and, you know, Obviously, anything you can do to accelerate that helps, and part of that is just knowledge and people learning about the concept and saying, "Oh, yes, that's something that I want. That's something I'm willing to go out and
0: purchase." Right now, I know that uh, if you look at ASHRAE Standard 189 for the high-performance buildings, um, you know their ultimate goal is to kind of drive it down into a a, a net-zero design manual, in essence.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so well, it, uh, it's uh, it's not really a design manual, but it's really a standard to right. say that you've either met that or not, just like you've either accomplished the zero energy or not according to, you know, a definition. Um, but it, it's showing the interest and the direction. Uh, even ASHRAE 90.1, uh, the newest version 2010, is substantially less energy than the previous version, 2007. Um and there's several organizations you've got architecture twenty thirty california energy commission um, ASHRAE has made statements you know all these organizations have made statements that this is the direction they want to head uh, and they've many of these uh, the target numbers I'm seeing is somewhere in the twenty thirty time frame uh to actually you know have this be a very routine thing
0: right now i mean as as far as you know i guess uh Globally, when we take a look at this, you know, are there areas around the world that may be ahead of the U.S. or that may have been, you know, thinking about it differently or acting upon it differently?
1: Um, that's a, a difficult question because you know, there's different policies, there's uh, even different um, needs and different regulations in different parts of the world. Certainly, uh, the International Energy Agency, in particular. A couple of uh, the groups, including the Solar Heating and Cooling Group, have task force task forces looking at this and what research is needed, and helping to accomplish some of that research. Um, task 40 um, from the Solar Heating and Cooling Program, International Energy Agency, is one such program that's doing that, and it probably has 20 or so countries involved in uh, collaborating together, looking at definitions. Um, looking at what case studies are out there to use as examples, uh, you know, basically to help move this forward. Um, I'm not as familiar with some of the um, European Union directives, but I believe I believe they also have some directives that are heading uh, towards zero energy in the long term.
0: Okay, so I guess the you know the the big question is, you know, okay, what's when you when you think about a net zero building? Yeah, what are some of the technologies being employed? So the, it it ranges
1: all across the board. The, the first, you know, for, let, let's divide it into kind of big families first. You know, the the biggest thing you need to do is reduce the energy load, and unless you can get that load down fifty to seventy percent uh, from kind of the current codes, what current um, practices today. It doesn't make sense to put the renewable energy generation on the building. Now, you can still do it, but if you're trying to do it from an economic point of view, you need to get to that, say, 50% savings first, and then the remaining load can be uh, generated. Um, Most people are using photovoltaic technology uh, to do that generation. Um, Quite often people say, well, I can make my building green and I'll put a bunch of solar panels on it and be done. Um, but really that, that's missing the point here. It's really to save that energy, uh, first, uh, there are many technologies, uh, that can be used in broad families. Usually we classify it as first deal with the lighting load. Um, most buildings in the United States, uh, could be, or could have been day lit, um, that is using the sunlight to offset electric lighting loads, um, in commercial buildings, that's usually your biggest impact. That also reduces your cooling load, allows you to downsize that equipment. Um, The next piece is usually the plug loads, uh, what we call plug-and-process loads uh, or miscellaneous electric loads. continues to increase in buildings, um, but that is something that the owner can manage. Uh, One of the things that we did at NREL was we went through and inventoried our plug loads and really started looking at what we were doing uh, from an energy consumption point of view with those loads. And we reduced them in half. Um, we started moving to all laptops and, you know, the flat screens are pretty well um, in the, the marketplace today. Um, but even things looking like we had fax machines all over the place. Um, and, you know, there's a technology and I think sometimes what happens is once something gets plugged in, it never gets unplugged. <laughs>
0: like
1: and taxes. So, I mean, we, we basically eliminated all of our fax machines. We eliminated a huge fraction of our printers. We went to three-in-one document processing devices that take care of all of that. We're scanning a lot more. Um, you know, email has certainly changed that dynamic. Um, but we reduced our plug loads 50%. We also looked at how we were managing our data center, um, and before, you know, and this was all part of us procuring what we believe is the world's largest zero-energy building now. But we had to reduce our plug loads in half in order to even think about being able to procure such a building. Um, once we did that, um, and I already mentioned the daylighting, uh, we looked at, in our case, natural ventilation, uh, operable windows in the building. Um, the loads became so low because of reducing the plug loads and the lighting loads that we went to all hydronic-based heating and cooling. Um, basically um, in the slabs, in the concrete slabs of the building. Um, we condition the outside air separately um, so we can regulate its humidity and bring it in uh, as it's needed in the building instead of just blowing a lot of air uh, in order to keep the space heated and cooled and then ventilated. Um, so we really looked at what all those loads and all those pieces were. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we created a building that used, you know, Uses half the energy of a conventional code compliant building. And then we designed the roof such that we could put the photovoltaics on the roof as well as the parking garage next to the building. And as a complex, that complex is now um, targeted for zero energy. Uh, We're not quite there yet because the photovoltaics on the garage isn't going to come online for another couple of months. It kind of was delayed. or it was after the building was built by about two years, just in our construction sequencing.
0: Now, I mean, I I guess, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting to kind of go through, okay, first you have to reduce the load in the building. I mean, it's always uh, kind of a mentality that I've I've seen that, you know, people try to say, okay, well, we need more efficient equipment, um, you know, rather than, you know, looking at how we're consuming now and what we can do to reduce that you know kind of just a, a way of doing business or so to speak now you know as as far as you know just in you know maybe in general i don't know if you've um researched this at all but i mean if you just take a look at you know the way people work you know just different habits i mean if somebody was to do you know no upgrades at all to their equipment but taught people to be more Responsible, or to say, hey, you know what? Maybe we can deal with a a, you know a wider temperature range. I mean, typically, you know, doing doing something like that. I mean, is there any uh, uh, research uh, about savings uh, in that vein?
1: Uh, Sure. So the the occupant has a big role and responsibility here, for sure. Um, But we don't want them to be uncomfortable. Um, There's a, a lot of layers to that question that you just asked. You know, sometimes, you know, especially when we're looking at retrofit of buildings, which I think is, you know, a lot of your comment was related to, you've got to be somewhat careful. Um, you know, people complain that a lot of big office buildings in particular are too cold. Well, that's actually a an a energy efficiency measure because in order to get the humidity out of the air in these old traditional HVAC systems, you have to cool down the air to get the humidity out and condense it out um, most of those buildings then would require that you reheated the building up to a comfortable temperature well that takes a lot of energy you hear about people that say oh yeah we're running our boilers in the summertime to keep the building comfortable well a lot of buildings as an energy efficiency measure have backed off on that that reheat and as a result the buildings are cooler um, but that's a that's a Condition of how that heating and cooling system was set up. There's still a lot of uh, what we call constant air volume systems out there. And in reality, if you reduce the plug loads in your building, the constant air volume building is going to make up that heating load with additional, usually electric resistance heating, and you get no energy savings. So you have to look at what kind of system type you have and sometimes just change that system out fundamentally. Uh, we had the option in our building that we were you know, doing new construction. And by doing the radiant surfaces, we actually could create a very comfortable environment for the people without necessarily heating and cooling the air in that building. And so that does give us a whole lot more flexibility and range in what the physical temperature is versus what the temperature the occupant senses is. And then those can be very different.
0: So, uh, getting back to the the equipment, you know, I mean, is there anything as far as technology goes that uh, is gonna is gonna help making net zero buildings uh, easier in the future?
1: Sure. So, the, so the more technologies that are out there to become more efficient, the the um, more options people have to achieve the same energy goal. And so, you know, you could save a BTU many different ways. So. You know, if you are fundamentally going to use a rooftop unit and, you know, there are now coming onto the marketplace uh, some rooftop units that have, um, part, you know, much better part load curves and so they can get an IEER rating of up over 18, uh, you know, that's 50% better than, than equipment, you know, that was out just a few years ago. And so that obviously has an impact and that those kinds of things get you closer to zero. But on the other side of it, you say, if I can design the envelope so well and I can get my cooling load down with daylighting, that maybe I don't need those rooftop units or as many of them, You know, the best piece of equipment is one that's not running at all. Right. And that needs to be a consideration or, or doesn't run much. Um, I can give you a good example of this. people uh, often uh, are very critical of electric resistance heating. Um, but, and we we actually had an example of this in our building where we use electric resistance heating in our bathrooms to heat hot water for the sinks at the point of use. And that was, you know, the alternative would have been to have natural gas as a central boiler to heat that hot water and then circulator pumps to run that hot water back and forth to all the sinks. Well, as we did the analysis, it actually used less energy to heat that water at that point of use only when people turn on the sink than it is to even run the circulator pumps, let alone run the boiler that initially had to heat that water. Wow. And so there's an example where if you kind of look at it as a system, the, quote, energy inefficient piece of equipment, i.e., the electric resistance heater, you know, and people consider it inefficient more because it's electricity and you've got that site-to-source conversion, you know, that somewhere, you know, either coal or natural gas, you know, only one out of three units of that energy is ever going to reach the building. Mm. You know, the rest of it is kind of thrown away in transmission and energy efficiency at the power plant just because of natural cycles. Um, But in our case, we found that it was a better solution to do that because they don't run much, and they were able to better manage that load. Um, and so you have to kind of look at it and you know holistically, and, and we kind of did that even at the whole building level, saying, "We want this building to perform to a set energy goal. You know we, we put out a challenge and actually procured the design build contractor to do that, and then they had to achieve that with that fixed price. That allowed them to bring their creativity to the problem to achieve the goal at a fixed price.
0: Right. Wow. Now, you, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, you said inefficiencies with the transmission of electricity. Um, there's, you know, bound to be a lot more inefficiencies out there. I guess the one thing that, that really fascinates me and and are, and like, batteries. You know, I mean, if you're mm-hmm. able to store energy on site so you don't have to kind of give it back to the grid and then b- buy it again, you know. Are, is, is battery technology improving? I mean, is that is that becoming more and more, um, you know, developed?
1: Uh, battery technology is certainly improving, um, you know, and a lot of that's being driven by the hybrid vehicle industry um, because they, they've got a situation. Well, and even small electronics, um, you know, where they have a need to have something remote, they have the power management, they want good, you know, weight ratios in there. Um, so a lot of that research is being done at that, you know, in, in that specific area. It uh, will move over to the building's area. One of the things to think about, though, is that storage takes on many forms. Um, you know, I, I already talked about us having laptops, which is a very interesting mechanism. Uh, but, you know, when you have a building that has 800 laptops in it, there's a significant amount of battery storage in all those laptops that you know, if you really wanted to, you could better utilize um, as as part of the whole dynamic of your system. Um, there's other things, other ways of getting you know effective capacity that way. We've got um, because we're doing our radiant heating and cooling in the floors. Um, that concrete mass acts as a thermal battery. Um, in fact, just just to kind of put it in perspective, between that and reducing our loads, our envelope loads, good insulation. You know, we talked about the lighting and the plug loads and things. We only have about 20% of the capacity, cooling capacity, of a traditional office building built in the Denver metropolitan area. Oh. Um, and that, you know, had other implications, but that's because of this whole integrated piece. Uh, it really changed, you know, the thinking of how to design the whole piece. And that storage was just inherent in those building envelopes. We just exploited it. Now, there's I, I, some things that. Oh, go ahead.
0: No, go ahead.
1: Oh, oh there, there's some other storage technologies, um, which are you know people are starting to think about. Um, ice is one where you can either make ice at night, or if you've got excess solar capacity, you could you know, turn that into ice. Um, one of the things about peak demand on buildings is that it does not occur when the sun is brightest. It usually occurs four or five hours after that you know, kind of in that 4 to 5 o'clock in the afternoon range. Mm-hmm. And quite often, if you can store enough ice, you know, you have all this photovoltaics in a zero-energy building, and you can use it to make ice in the morning. You could even melt it that afternoon to provide that cooling load and help, you know, ramp through that. Ice is a very efficient storage mechanism because you basically get back close to the same amount of energy out as you put in. Where battery technology, you're only going to get about 80% out Compared to what you put into that. Mm.
0: Now, if if somebody's looking at making a net zero building, um, does it does it matter the location? I mean, is is there adaptations for for each area? I mean, if you're if you're in you know uh, you know Florida, it's hot and humid, or whether or not you're in you know northern Montana, um, you know where it might be cold cold and dry. What, um, you know, is is there kind of just a building, for, building type for everybody, or...? Uh,
1: there is not, uh, which I think has always been one of the challenges, um, you know, much like there should not be an HVAC system for everybody, but unfortunately we tend to deliver the same system to everybody. Um, but the solutions change, and there are definitely areas that are easier to achieve zero energy than others. I mean, if you're building a building... Uh, You know, on the coastline in California, a very temperate climate, temperature doesn't change much. Um, You know, really all you have to do is if you have a well-insulated building, you don't need much of a heating and cooling system, and all you have to do is meet the electrical load piece. Um, You know, if you build that building in Miami, you know, you might have a huge abundance of sunlight that you can convert into your daylight and use the photovoltaics for generation, but you also need a lot of energy just to dehumidify that building and make it you know comfortable you know in the summertime. Um, you know Montana's the opposite end. you're going to have less solar gain available um, and you have a much larger heating load uh, but that usually gives you some opportunities on the passive heating side um, so you, you know the the solutions definitely vary. I think the the real message here is that if you're a building owner and you're spending real dollars on this. Figure out how many dollars you want to spend on your building, and then go out and hire a design-build team to deliver that product as a single product that achieves all of your goals. And competitively find the group of people that is going to get you that product.
0: Okay. Well, let's... and
1: they will, and and they will come up with the design solutions, you know, to meet the need in that environment. Um, I often like historical architecture and partly if you look at a building that was built before say 1930 um, and and especially before 1900 you know energy wasn't readily available and so quite often the architecture had to follow you know the climatic sensitivities um, in order to keep that building comfortable and best meet its occupant's needs that's why in the southwest we tend to have a lot of adobe construction um, a lot of the earlier factories that were done in the northeast uh, part, New England area, you know, are long thin bays with lots of windows because they wanted to get the day lighting and the cross ventilation in. So sometimes you just have to look back at how we did buildings a hundred years ago mm. um, because they had to design those things in. And a lot of what we're seeing in today's low energy buildings are just adapting to those, you know, somewhat older technologies,
0: older ways of thinking. Right, because, I mean, essentially you get a, you know, ideally you'd love kind of, you know, here are the things that are working in this region, you know, based on our climate. And, And the fact that, you know, we don't necessarily have to have zero energy buildings built to know that, you can go back in history and find, okay, here's kind of what worked in our region. Let's tweak that, update it. Yeah, but keep some of the uh, some of the thought processes that were there.
1: Absolutely.
0: Great. Now, when we talk about net zero engineering, you know, you, you hire the design builder, um, you know, to do this. And obviously, you know, if there are not that many buildings, it has to be somebody pretty special, um, or you know, maybe not so special, but they'd have to have some basic set of skills. What you know, what do you think is going to be the, the keys of success? Uh, engineering-wise, for, um, you know, designing net-zero buildings?
1: I think that you have to not look at how you did it yesterday if you've never done this before. Um, Really, it's about thinking out of the box, thinking about, you you know, as an engineer, go back to engineering school and say, you know, what are some fundamental concepts? How do I really think about how energy is flowing and not just, well, I'm going to install the same rooftop unit I did last week because it worked last week, it's going to work this week. Um, And so up front, it takes some creative thinking and it takes some brainstorming and a little bit out of the box. We talked about looking at some things historically. I'm not sure that um, uh, other than the creativity and and the willingness um, to, to kind of trust your calculations and to think out of the box. Um, I would say are the biggest skills that we need to kind of remind engineers that most of them have, and a lot of them haven't um, probably exercised them as much um, of late.
0: <laughs> so, so use those long lost muscles is what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think in a lot of cases, you know, especially people that have been in the industry a long time, you know, there was a lot of interest in this in the you know late '70s, early '80s. Um, and it kind of, you know, it kind of disappeared a little bit, at least from the forefront. Um, and, you know, there were schools that were teaching some of that then, and it and was just dusting that off um, again. And, and even just looking around and saying, you know, what else is out there? How how can I help the owner and, and challenge him to think differently? You know, things like, you know, if I'm an HVAC engineer, and well, and the other part is, let's get out of our silos, mm-hmm. Right. If I'm designing a heating and cooling system and I look at that building and say, hey, I could drop the size of that system by 30 or 40 percent if the lighting designer would put in daylighting sensors and actually get those lights to turn off, right? Right. I might be able to save a certain percentage if I can, you know, get the architect not to, to create a glass box that doesn't have any solar load management, you know what we can't be on the engineering side is the tail end here. Right? We've got to proactively think up front on how can the architecture and the building reflect the energy of it. It's a team process. But on the other side, the architect really rarely will get blamed for having a low-energy building. It's always the engineer because he was the one to put in the heating and cooling system that's running too much and using all the energy. Right, right, so you know it, it's really you know as an engineer, I think you have to be able to push it. so when when we did our building uh, and did the procurement, interestingly, the contractor, uh, one of the things that they did was they hired very early on an energy consultant that ran the modeling, and, well and they were the engineering firm, to make sure that those decisions would work in parallel with the architecture as well as the construction philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's that's the other piece is that quite often architects and engineers design these buildings and there might be something out of the box. I mean we've talked about the radiant heating and cooling tubing. And most contractors may look in that say, well I've never done one of those before. I'm willing to do it but I'm going to double or triple the price. Right. Right? And that will discourage them from doing something different. Well the contractor has to be willing to. And in this case because the contractor, the engineer, and architect were all on board, you know, they started brainstorming and said, well, the way we're going to get there is to use this radiant floor system or radiant uh, slab system and, um, you know, made a challenge to the mechanical subcontractor, saying, well, how are we going to get this installed at a competitive price with the normal sheet metal ductwork and air base systems? And they, you know, they all scratched their heads and found a way to to implement that process. Um, And partly because they were all in the boat together. They were all responsible for achieving the same goal. It wasn't piecemeal like a lot of uh, design design and construction is done now.
0: So, do you think that it's 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 critical to? I mean, obviously, you have to have you know obviously integrated design is being thrown around there quite a bit uh, in the industry. But uh, do you really think that uh, it has to be you know a whole team uh, kind of event with the you know with a con- getting the contractor on board? I mean, is this is this really the only way that you can successfully uh, attain a net zero building?
1: I don't think it's the only way. I think what we have found is that given the small marketplace, that it is probably the easiest way, that it fosters the communication, it makes sure you know it, it makes sure that everybody is on the same page, heading in the same direction. Because you also have a whole quality piece that has to go with it. I mean I can't tell you how many job sites I've been on where the plans say insulation and they sort of put a little insulation in. You know, well in this case the contractor had some real responsibility to make sure all of their subcontractors got it right. You know, so it, it's really a management of getting it up and down. I think that as more and more of these get built, and you have better specifications surrounding this, and there's, you know, you talked about training and what, um, you know, uh, what things people need to know to do this. As people know more about it, and it becomes more routine. Then you probably can look at other procurement paths mm-hmm. um, but right now, what we have found is that this is the easiest uh, if you don't have that path, it can be done typically, it costs you more money
0: right now I guess uh, figuring back into the the building envelope i mean when when I think of net zero buildings, I think you know obviously that is the you know the orientation of the building the you know construction of the envelope um you know we're really kind of getting back to the um you know uh, being reasonable about it i mean a lot i i guess at least in my mind i see a lot of uh, architects that that might like to make a statement or they like to be fancy about it and you really have to get down to uh, function more than more than uh, um you know that, so it's. I, I guess I kind of. You know, would you would you agree to the fact that not only do engineers need to not do what they've been doing uh, to attain you know energy savings, but architects also have to look at the building envelope and improve upon that because they can't use what they've always used in the past.
1: Well, absolutely, and that kind of goes back to looking at the historical architecture. You know, a hundred years ago, architects had to do certain things because they didn't have electric lights and they didn't have cooling systems right and it, it's going back and, and thinking about that but you know the other part of it is, is that people tend to spend money on things that they want to spend money on and so the architect wants to do you know some nice finishes they want certain look, certain feel and they're willing to spend money on that where the engineer typically has to struggle to get money to put in more efficient equipment and some of it is just being able to mesh those dollars together um you know, if that, if that makes sense. You know, mm. again, that's part of this holistic thinking, that they, they understand the consequences. But all buildings have something in them that didn't have to be cost-effective. You know, maybe a lot of wood trim or, um, you know, maybe some expensive designer light fixtures. You know, those things are fine as long as people realize that extra money was spent and that, that they chose to spend money on that versus maybe a daylight system that got them the same spectacular lighting but also saved energy. Uh, one, one of my favorites is something like fountains, right? Mm-hmm. People love having fountains in front of their building. It's an architectural feature people like to look at, them, but they cost money and they use energy, right? So if you're going to do those kinds of things, that's okay as long as you realize you know, that this isn't all about cost-effectiveness. People don't spend money based on cost-effectiveness. They use that as an excuse to get things out of projects. Mm-hmm. So they can usually use that money to buy something else. And that's one of the things about you know, a single procurement with fixed goals, that all of those things become balanced, that, that all of the goals are put out on the table up front, and it is the objective of that design team to meet all those goals not just some of them, and then add energy efficiency after.
0: Now, I guess, you know, ultimately getting to this goal of, you know, okay, you've designed it, you've modeled it, you've constructed it, you've installed it, you've tested it. Now it comes time to actually monitor it, you know, mm-hmm. analyzing the, the meters and things like that. I mean, what, what sort of different things are you doing with, the, you know, the, the metering data? Um, you know, to actually make sure that, you know, it's actually attaining, you know, what it's set out to. I mean, obviously yeah. that, that – is that – If you find that as like a critical piece or do you just – I mean, it's you know, you look at the utility bills and you say, okay, well, I'm net zero. Is there a, a lot more, you know, heavy uh, monitoring of it?
1: Uh, there there can be. There
0: doesn't have to be.
1: I mean, even looking at utility bills gives you one data point a month, right? So that is still metering and that's still monitoring your progress, Uh, towards that goal Um, typically though the more data you have the better chance the better the chances of you picking up errors or you know things that are going wrong in that system and getting them corrected and so um, but you have to be able to use that data in a meaningful way i see a lot of people collect a lot of data and spend a lot of money on debt acquisition systems and metering and don't do anything with it Well, you know, at that point, you know, there's very little value. Um, There's another point that you kind of raised in there, too, in in terms of how does the building perform according to an expectation um, or a design expectation or a goal set up up front. Um, What we have found is that a lot of people use energy models either for code compliance, maybe they use it for an initial conceptual uh, to get them on track with energy efficiency, and they don't follow that energy model with the design of the building. And then they start publishing data about the building, and they say, oh, well, here's what our design model said the building was going to do. But that model, by the time construction is done, may not look anything like the original building. And then data starts coming in, and the two, the two obviously aren't going to match. Yeah. I mean, I've even seen people use, try to use models different size buildings, you know, all kinds of things. Um, but you got to spend the money to make sure that that prediction and that model is current with the design, that it follows the plans. We we call it as-built models. Mm-hmm. If you do that, and then you operate the building according to that model, typically we find that they can get within about 10%. Wow.
0: Um But it, it's
1: you know there, there's some diligence that goes with that. The other part and something that we've done is we took those daily energy targets off of our model as built and we actually compare it with our daily energy totals to see you know, on a daily basis are we on track or not. Um, and in some cases, you, know, you always find things like a, something in the controls where a pump was running you know, all the time or you know, uh, maybe some light sensors weren't calibrated properly, which is common, and so the lights are on all the time. Um, you know, you, you do have to commission the building and get it to meet the design intent. Um, otherwise, you know, the two are not going to match, and, and you can't have an expectation that the two are going to match.
0: Right. All right, so if somebody wanted to learn more about how to design net-zero buildings, um, you know, or get more information just on, on the research that you've done, where, where are some places that they could do that?
1: Uh, So probably the the easiest is, uh, you know, do a search engine and and look up Zero Energy Buildings, or NCEB, quite often pulls up our work as well as other people's work. Uh, We've talked a little bit about NREL's new building, the research support facility, and how that was procured. Uh, You can find information about that at NREL, that's N-R-E-L dot G-O-V slash R-S-F. You can get the procurement. You can get uh, all kinds of photos and information about the building, although I would warn people that, you know, that was designed for that application. I've heard of people trying to take that plan and say, and we talked earlier about saying, I'm going to take that building because it works there, and I'm going to plunk it down in a very different climate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, that, you know, some things will work, you know, like the plug load strategies will work, you know, in that case. Um there's also uh, a bunch of information and fact sheets on commercialbuildings.energy.gov, um, which is the Commercial Buildings Program for the U.S. Department of Energy. Um, and, again, there's resources there. You can do searches on things like plug loads, um, you know, daylighting, and get some of the different components. Uh, there's a lot of uh, information that was just released on things like LED parking lot lights, um, LED parking garage lights. Um, you know, some newer technologies, and you asked about technologies earlier, that uh, because of their directional nature and ability to turn on and off quickly, um, those kinds of technologies um, quickly are finding their way into uh, these low-energy buildings.
0: Excellent. Um, if somebody wanted to ask you a question, uh, what would be the best way to uh, to get a hold of you? Uh,
1: so... Um, so Part of it is some of you know my bandwidth uh, if you go to um, that commercialbuildings.energy.gov, dot gov at the mm-hmm. bottom there's a webmaster link um, and questions can be asked there um, Some of those get uh, rooted to me specifically um, others get answered directly by the webmaster um, They will all get answered in you know a good technical fashion probably at a quicker bandwidth than, than <laughs> I will readily do it
0: understood understood well. Paul, I really appreciate you uh spending some time with us talk about uh, net zero or low, g- zero, uh, low energy buildings. Um uh just uh, appreciate all the information. I think it's 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 really good stuff and um you know, I hope we can have, you know, many more examples of of, of these type of buildings in the future.
1: Sure and and be willing to tell us and others those stories, you know, as, as people do these things. Um there is a website uh, buildingdata.energy.gov, um, and you can actually enter case studies and and your buildings onto them, uh, and you know people can can look at that energy performance, and other people can learn, because that that's one of the ways that we're going to get this market transformation is that people see that other people have taken the risk, and that every additional person that takes the risk um, is less risk for the next person.
0: Excellent. And uh, uh, listeners can uh, not worry about the uh, (laughs) jotting down all the URLs. I will get those and post them on the show notes on the website. So, um, again, thank you, Paul, for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. All right. And we're back. Uh, Thanks again to Paul for uh, taking some time out of his schedule to uh, To talk with us about uh, the net zero energy buildings I, I you know I think it's very it 's fascinating it 's always been a, a, g- a great topic of mine I mean how you can actually minimize the impact in the environment you know whether or not you believe in global warming or uh, you think the green movement is a, is a bunch of smoke and mirrors, I think what, undeniably we should be good stewards of uh, of of the environment that we have yeah you know, we should leave the earth better than we found it and i think that uh you know going in that direction using less energy being smarter about our designs thinking about it a little bit more i think i think we got the heating and cooling thing down now let's try to just uh you know kick it up a notch take it up to the next level and uh, be able to be more uh inventive about the things that we do in engineering so i appreciate uh the paul's words of wisdom there uh also, this, uh, again, was a listener request. If you have a request that you'd like to have, uh, just email me at matt at Again, thanks to Michael for uh, suggesting this Net Zero Energy Buildings. Hopefully, it it, uh, it uh, was all that he had hoped for. So uh, thank you again for that feedback. Uh, also, another word, uh, 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 another note, I'd like to uh, do a special shout-out to Kevin Rogers Kevin Rogers is a uh, uh, has left some feedback for me on iTunes and you know if you've listened to some of the earlier episodes I was groveling a little bit for some iTunes feedback really you know it helps everybody uh, you know personally it, it helps me in the rankings as far as uh, you know being found you know if if somebody you know if you like the show just you know just give some feedback I'd, I'd really appreciate that. And obviously, Kevin is the first one to take me up on that offer. So very special kudos to you, Kevin. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Uh, otherwise, uh, again, you know you have uh, you have full access to your host here, Matt, at buildingx.co. If you'd like to sign up for a newsletter and kind of give some of the uh, the inside scoop, you can always go to buildingx.co, sign up for the newsletter there. I publish that about once a month. And I tend to give a little bit of uh, tips and tricks, or uh, certain you know it's it's relatively short, but certain links that I find during the during the month, uh, and I'll share those to uh, the 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 few the proud uh, the newsletter subscribers. So, uh, otherwise, if you uh, like the show, please pass it on. If you want some feed, if you can give me some feedback, you know where I'm at. And uh, other than that, I appreciate each and every one of you listening, tuning in week by week. Uh, And uh, with that, I think I will wrap this up. Thanks for your time, and remember, know what you build and share what you know.